0: Captain Marvel, Weiwei, the Catholic Church and Boeing are all in the news for basically the same thing, but a little bit different. What am I talking about? Well, in this week's episode of Listen to This, we delve a bit deeper into reputation management, online trolls, and identity dissociation to work out how these brands are going to dig their way out of their current troubles. Plus, what is a nerd space and how is privilege like bad breath? Those questions and more are up for discussion this week. This is your guide to marketing and the world of business. My name is Paul Harrison, and you should listen to this. Down on their knees, like Hello and welcome to the first edition of Listen to This, uh, the Deakin University marketing department podcast, and welcome to all of the students in the MBA program and anyone else who's listening. And what we're going to be doing is talking about just marketing stuff, and that's why we want you to listen to this. And we're really lucky today because we have a superstar um, in the the room with me chatting. Um, It's uh, Virginia Weber, uh, Ginny, as she likes to be called. She sits in the office next to me. Ginny is from Canada. She's from the University of Alberta, but she joined Deakin University, lucky us, in June 2018. She's one of the lecturers in marketing. What's the unit that you teach at the moment? Uh,
1: Integrated Marketing Communications. Uh, Integrated
0: Marketing Communications, that's right. And she tells me she's a superhero media nerd, so she's the kind of person that you actually want to be your friend because she can tell you what's going on. And um, so, Ginny, tell me, what's been going on in your world of marketing these last couple of weeks?
1: In my world of marketing, well, one of the things that has really caught my eye recently because I'm a superhero nerd is this whole situation happening around the Captain Marvel movie.
0: So tell me tell me the whole thing, the situation.
1: The whole thing, the situation. So this is Marvel's first female superhero lead. So Brie Larson is acting as Captain Marvel, first time they have a female in the lead. And what has happened is the website Rotten Tomatoes is a, you know, it's a website that aggregates critics reviews as well as audience reviews. And before slash within hours of... The uh, movie being released there were 54,000 reviews on the website. On Rotten Tomatoes. On Rotten Tomatoes from the audience. Um, So this... So
0: people who'd seen the film or people who'd speculated that they'd seen the film?
1: So this was predominantly the website discovered people who had not seen the film. As a comparison the movie Infinity War has been out for about a year now and only has 53,000 audience reviews and it's one of the most reviewed films of all time. (laughs) So predominantly... Wow. This was online trolls, as they're called, who were trying to damage the reputation so, of Captain Marvel. So,
0: online trolls are they? Are they people who are? Is it, are they bots or are they real people?
1: So it can be a combination of each. There are real people behind this, and one of the quickest ways for these people to you know get what they're looking to do is for them to write really quick scripts, really quick bots, which will. Go and rate this movie for them, maybe with a little bit of gibberish or the same words repeated. But it can also just be real people who,
0: who it, just have no time, who have who too, have much, time too on, much, much, time. much time on their hands. Yeah. Yes, right. <laughs>
1: it's um, it's not actually that difficult on the internet when something goes viral to get fifty thousand people invested in it. Wow! So they were they were decreasing the the overall score of Captain Marvel, and the website Rotten Tomatoes realized this is an issue. And they actually scrubbed 50,000 reviews off and made it so that for no movie on their website can you have people rating a movie before its release date. Okay. So they...
0: This is, this is really interesting because it reminds me a little bit of the whole Tumblr thing oh, a, yes. a couple of months ago with, you know, that they kind of basically anything with skin in it or something like that that they just completely banned.
1: Yes, anything and adult.
0: Adult, yeah. And, like, Tumblr was this site not not just for adult stuff but for, you know, weird groups of people, interesting groups of people to kind of have their space. And it's, it sounds like a very similar thing. It's like basically we're going to just put a rule now because I think this is the other thing with the internet is that it's grappling with these issues now that it's this big kind of you know, everybody's welcome and the Internet's for everybody, but then they realize that there are ramifications when you kind of have this huge open kind of way of doing things.
1: Absolutely. And Tumblr took a bit of a, a scorched earth policy. They yes. had some very questionable content did on I their say website. I Tumblr? I did say Tumblr. You did say Tumblr, Tumblr. yes, <laughs> yes. And, um, and their reaction was to get rid of all adult content, yeah. even down to, from what I understand, you know, paintings of... You know, truth coming out of the well to shame mankind. Yes, that's Um, right. So paintings, everything, it was kind of all gone in the space of a week, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And we're seeing Rotten Tomatoes and we're seeing brands, companies, internet spaces, anyone who's existing on the internet has to grapple with, you know, people who are genuine and people who are disingenuous when they interact with this space.
0: Yeah. But but the the internet gives you the scope to be anonymous and disingenuous. I mean it's it's it, it remind it, I always kind of think about the internet as being something like when you're in a car like you you do things in your car that you wouldn't do if you weren't in your car like you know and I think it's the same kind of it's a really interesting psychological space the internet has kind of people don't behave the way that you would behave you know in a face-to-face interaction.
1: Absolutely. And it allows for people to be angry in this way yeah. and to lash out. And I think one of the things that we see is that social media is this pseudo public space. Yeah. It's not public in the face-to-face way, but our reactions are being observed by people as if they're public, but they're not attributed to me. I'm anonymous, but mm. the rest of the world still sees me. And so we get this we get these interesting polarizations of what people do.
0: Right. Can you so what do you mean by that? So can you elaborate a little bit on So you can't you, you as if you're the poster, you don't you don't you don't feel as if you're being seen. Is that what you're saying? Or? Well,
1: if I, if I make a Twitter account, if I make yeah. a fake Twitter account right. um, that isn't attached to my personal identity, and then I okay. tweet at certain celebrities, that behavior is public. That can be witnessed by everyone I've tweeted to and from everyone else in this space. Mm. But people don't know that I am the one doing it. So it allows these people to have this sense of power. They're creating a reaction in the world.
0: Yeah. And
1: yet they themselves don't have to carry the consequence. Right.
0: It's, it's interesting, too, because, you know, people have described um, a lot of social media, Facebook, Instagram, those kinds of things as... a a, a kind of film of performance so you know you it's performative so you're but then again you know if you think about identity as performative as well you know like being a woman is performative according to kind of feminist literature and all of those kinds of things so you know like it's hard not to be performing all that the internet does and all that social media does i think is extend that gap between the audience and the performer in a way and so makes it easier for you to do bizarre things Or, I don't know, what would you call it? Socially unacceptable things.
1: Definitely. It gives us a space to be more socially unacceptable because we don't have to carry the consequence of that behavior. But it is, without a doubt, a performative space. I I would agree with that assessment entirely. Um,
0: Yeah. Um, And so um, tell me a little bit more about this whole Captain Marvel thing. What happened in the end?
1: So what happened in the end, um, you know, it's been out for about two weeks now. It's back up to 61,000 reviews. Of real
0: people. Of hopefully.
1: Hopefully real people.
0: Right. And how's um, it going? What, what's the review look like?
1: So now it has an overall positive score, where okay. before it had an incredibly negative one.
0: What What is, being, being the superhero media nerd that you are, what well, is the issue with women? Not with women in terms of women, but people's re- response to women playing roles in these superhero movies. I mean, I get it. I understand, you know, like it's scared little men. But, you know, why, why is it so important to, the, to that particular kind of segment in a way?
1: So it does, I think, tie to identity in a very important way. So for a very long time in this genre, in in what I'll call the nerd space...
0: (laughs) Yeah, let's call it that. Um, The the nerd nerd space. space. Is that something that we can copyright? Let's call it the nerd space. Let's copyright that. Trademark
1: done. Um, Done. So this space has been predominantly used by men, seen by men, curated by male fans. Okay. um, And comic books catered to this interest as well. So they were mostly for a long time about men and consumed by men who had a vested interest in having that space outside of necessarily the, you know, the sports rule mainstream society and the professional identity. It was a space for a lot of disenfranchised young men mm. to be nerds, to feel like this was a safe space for them that wasn't judgmental. And sometimes these men have not had the best luck interacting with women, and not just in a romantic space, but, you know, there are other you know, dynamics with gender that that can be conflicting. It could
0: also be the way that they interpret those interactions. I think, you know, like if you have privilege and if you believe that you're entitled to these things and you get rejection, which is just a natural part of social interaction, then you think, well... You know, all of that group of people who've rejected me are worthy of my anger and, and disappointment.
1: Absolutely. And I think
0: that comes with privilege as well. I think, you know, when you have so much privilege, you, you're not conscious of your privilege. You don't realize that this is just how the world works. And because life has been so, been so easy for you, you've never kind of noticed these things.
1: And that's part of how, how privilege works. You yeah. don't you don't realize you don't your own privilege. Yeah, that, exactly. That's how it functions. Exactly. Uh, but you have so like, all
0: those people with privilege don't who say oh no there's no such thing as privilege they're exactly kind of you know supporting that, that thesis really is they they're are, saying I don't notice it
1: yes they're yes. providing evidence it's, it's like for bad it.
0: breath you know you don't <laughs> everyone else notices it but you don't
1: of course yes privilege <laughs> is bad breath yes. so it's also a good analogy we should write that one down okay, too cool no um, <laughs> and these narratives themselves you know they were catering to this male fantasy of getting the girl. Um, saving Mm. the girl, the damsel in distress. And
0: that's also in the comic book kind of...
1: Yes, exactly. And so so there's this this wonderful fantasy about being powerful. And then when women come into this space um, and women enjoy the media in this space, what it does is it says, this is for us too, to a group of people who held very tightly to this. Mm. And it says, you know... Being a nerd is not the reason you can't interact well with women. Women like this media too. You can't necessarily you know, interact in a healthy manner with women in part because of the actions you're taking. And it asks people to be more responsible for their own actions. Mm. And some people with privilege and a sense of entitlement will react to that. They don't want the identity threat that is, well, it's not your interests that make you... You know... Um, they
0: give you power. They
1: give you power. Yeah. It's... Yes.
0: Yeah. Um, you kind of mentioned this whole idea of, you know, identity dissociation. What, what, what do you mean by that?
1: So, identity can kind of come into three flavors when we're talking about social identity. There's the groups I'm part of, mm. the groups I want to be part of, my aspirations, and then there are the groups I don't want to be part of, and that's the dissociation. Okay. So, we see this with, you know, Captain Marvel... We see this um, in a lot of other spaces online. So these these trolls are attacking Captain Marvel, saying we don't want women. They're a dissociative group as part of this space. Oh, okay, okay. And what we see on the other hand is when is when something is attacked. Um, when Captain Marvel is attacked. When um, Black Panther is attacked. When any media is attacked. When Nike is attacked, um, as they are for their political stance. So you have, you have one side of the equation being attacked. Um, the people who do identify, who say, no, 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 this is my identity, they will actually rear up in support. Right. And so what I've noticed in the marketing space and a little bit, too, in the political space is that this identity polarization that we're seeing in the way social media functions to make these conversations you know, bigger and yeah. larger and more powerful... Um, is that brands are able to leverage this identity connection
0: or disconnection
1: or disconnection? Yes,
0: really. So, and they're doing it. Can you kind of think of brands that are doing that?
1: So, and and I can't say for sure that this is what Nike yeah. has done deliberately. Yeah, but Nike. Um, so in America, oh, yeah, yeah, with yeah, American yeah. football, yep. um, there's a very polarizing figure, Colin Kaepernick, yep. who was protesting um, in a peaceful manner. And in became, what
0: way? Tell tell us, in what way was he protesting? So
1: he was not standing for the American national anthem.
0: And Donald Trump had conniptions.
1: Donald Trump did not like it. A lot of Americans on the right end of their political spectrum mm. took exception with mm. this. And so he became a figure who was polarizing in a patriotic identity sort of way.
0: Whatever patriotism is. Yes. That's right. Yes.
1: Um, so what Nike did is that they signed Colin Kaepernick for a deal... And they had a Twitter advertisement with him on it. And what you saw the next day was a lot of people on the American political right saying, I'm going to burn my Nike shoes. I will never buy from Nike again.
0: And do people do that? Or is it is it more about performing to the world?
1: You know, and I think it's a little bit of both. I think yeah. there are people, we react very strongly when our identity But you know, burning a two, 200
0: $300 spent. pair of shoes seems a bit silly.
1: It is silly. It's absolutely <laughs> silly. But identity makes us do... Things that are not necessarily logical. Yeah. It's an emotional reaction yeah, yeah, yeah. as it's a right. perceived rejection from a brand. Mm. It's like the brand has broken up with you. You're breaking up with them. So what,
0: did anything happen to Nike? Like it did so sales go down or anything like that? Sales as far as you know?
1: went down very temporarily. There was a there was a stock market little dip there. Mm, right. What happened, again, so you have this one side of the equation saying, mm-hmm. we hate this brand now for taking a stance. But then the other side, the supporting side, realizes their own identity is being attacked. This is who I am. You have the, this is who I don't want to be, and this is who I am. And so they came back. Sales went up for Nike. Their stock market performance went great, is still holding strong. So after that quick little dip, it, it... turned out to be a very advantageous choice for the brand. I
0: think I think that's kind of feeds into one of the things I noticed or that I wanted to kind of think about this week as well, this whole idea of kind of reputation management as well, you know, like yes. one of the things I kind of always think about when businesses when things go wrong, when businesses do things or there's, you know, fewer or whatever in the world, um, particularly in relation to brands, um, is do they think about, you know, what, what the kind of process is going to be? Do they think when they kind of launch a campaign, you know, with, a, with a, um, a person who might cause real problems for the brand, do they kind of think through that process? A lot of the time, you know, my experience has been working with businesses is that they're so kind of focused in on, on getting things happening that they don't really think beyond the positives, you know, the positive aspects of it. And they don't think beyond their own segments often, you know, they don't think but there are other stakeholders and publics and stuff like that. And I guess, you know, one of the things I always think about is reputation and um, it's probably comes from my kind of background on boards and things like that. But, you know, actually what do you call it? Like doing due diligence about your marketing before you go ahead and do it. Now, clearly with Nike, that kind of pays off, but I was thinking, you know, things like, Boeing at the moment, you know, like, man, they're going to have trouble with... with, It's a 737 MAX kind of thing, but convincing people, convincing, first of all, the big brands to buy the planes, but then convincing your passengers that it's safe to get on those planes. And I I kind of think back to Malaysian Airlines, you know, that one plane went... And again, not of their own doing, but, you know, one plane... I can't remember the order, whether it was the one that was shot down over Ukraine and then the, the MH, I can't remember the, the number, but the one that disappeared. But, you know, Malaysian Airlines, I notice all the time are offering cheap discount fares. People don't want to travel on Malaysian Airlines. I see in the Twitter sphere and on Instagram, you know, people say, I saw this amazing price for Malaysian Airlines, but I refused to go on them. And I think when you think about with the Boeing 737, the one that happened um, in Indonesia, but then the one that happened this week or so with Ethiopia, you go, okay, that's really difficult for Boeing to recover from that. How do you manage that kind of reputation? And I think it's a real kind of crisis management kind of mentality.
1: Okay. So, so, And I think that's really interesting. And I think that the case of Boeing this week is especially fascinating because, as you mentioned with Malaysian Airlines, normally when something happens in this type of sphere, we, we look at the airline and we say, well, Malaysian Airlines was the problem, not the airplane itself. Mm. But now we're seeing people recognizing it might be an issue with Boeing, the creators of the airplane, and their reputation is now taking a hit rather than necessarily the airline, Ethiopian Airlines. Yeah. And so...
0: And so how do, you know, I've always kind of thought from a a business point of view, how do you manage that? How, so is it all of the airlines that own Boeing 737s, does that then have a halo effect to all airlines with Boeings, you know, because there's really only two, there's a couple more, but there's really only two big manufacturers of commercial jets, which is Boeing and Airbus. You know, other than that, you know, there are smaller kind of ones around, but you just think, you know, without... Airbus has had its problems but you know Airbus up until recently I remember you know was really struggling with media because of the A380 you know that they've kind of said this is the the plane of the past now because people don't want to travel and it's going to be the Boeing 7, 787 which is going to do all of the long-haul flights and all of those kinds of things so it is really interesting to kind of see how reputational management is done and like you say you know it's not It's not Ethiopian Airlines and it's not the Indonesian airline, it's the actual supplier of the aeroplanes, which is kind of, you know, who manages the the brand there?
1: Yeah, who manages the brand? I wouldn't want
0: to get on a Boeing 737 MAX at the moment, even though, you know, at a kind of, as everybody says, that, you know, when you're safer getting on a plane than you are getting in your car or walking across the road, but... You know you know, um like George Lowenstein's kind of perspective of you know riskers feelings it's like, well yeah, but the the perceived risk is is visceral right now, so it'll be really scary to get on a seven three seven max.
1: i I agree entirely. I think that. One of the things fascinating about this is that consumers, the average consumer doesn't normally think about the aircraft no. when selecting a flight. No. And this might be shifting that a little bit certainly this week in the news. You are thinking about it. I'm thinking about yeah. it. I'm thinking, yeah, I don't want to be on that airplane.
0: And you have to, and like even though, you know, it might be the, the new Boeing 737 Max, which is everybody is talking about, really I couldn't imagine that people would be thinking to that level of depth. They'd be going Boeing perhaps, and then the next level might be Boeing 737. And, you know, a lot of Qantas's and Virgin's planes are seven three seven so it's hard to avoid flying. But, um, you know, it's really interesting, uh, and this is kind of a, an interesting kind of perspective, but when I, I was I was teaching at RMIT when, um, in September 11, 2001, and I actually flew to the United States on September the 20th, 2001. Wow. Um, but my students were saying to me, aren't you afraid, of getting into an aeroplane. I went, well, no, it's probably the safest time to be getting into an aeroplane because, like, security will be ridiculously high. And then I said to them, but aren't you afraid of going into tall buildings? So it was that thing of, you know, what do we, where do we look for the kind of the, the risks? We go, well, it's aeroplanes because aeroplanes as a concept, when they crash, is, is you know, big. You know, it's, it's a big thing, but we don't kind of broadcast what well, we do in a way, but, we, you know, car crashes or... You know the number of, you know people being killed in domestic violence kind of thing. So I think again, it is about what we notice and what is seen. What is seen as newsworthy and things like that. Like I would still say it's safe to get probably getting Boeing seven three seven Maxes, anyway. But it is that kind of reputational kind of management that Boeing has to kind of go through right now.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and we see this. You know, you hear about statistics of how many people die from yeah. a couch cow being tipped over onto them or per year. Or in the shower. Yes. Versus, you know, by lightning strikes yes. or by, by shark attacks. But probability
0: attacks. is a really interesting concept because we're really bad at kind of understanding probability. We
1: are terrible at it. And, and emotion management comes in. So mm. as you said, you know, risk is feelings. So with with airplanes, we don't feel a like, sense of control. Mm. We lack control the second we walk oh, it's, into it's an airplane. It's full on,
0: if you think about it. It's a metal tube hurtling through the air with just wings full of fuel. Right. Like it's a pretty scary. It is a scary it, At experience. an objective level, it's a pretty scary concept.
1: So in that case, you have brands, you know, the airplane providers and the, the airlines themselves who they're... Biggest selling point in a lot of cases is trust, is mm. consumer trust.
0: And mm. safety, which, is part, right, which is part of that trust. Right, is
1: part of that trust. We will get you from point A to point B.
0: And, and you won't be dead. Exactly. <laughs> and head. if you
1: don't have that, it's, it is a necessary condition. It's, yeah. not necessary, it's not sufficient, but it is 100% necessary as yeah. your starting point. So yeah. how Boeing is going to navigate this.
0: It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of leads me to one of the other things, again, very kind of newsworthy today is the Catholic Church. And I I guess religion in general, you know, like um, it's a really, and, and we don't want to get too kind of, we want to be careful here because religion is always a tricky area to talk about. But I do think, you know, when you think about the Catholic Church, when you think about the effect that the trial of George Pell has had on people's perspectives in a way when probably, you know, one of the most senior members of the Catholic Church is charged, it it really does change people's perspective of trust in a way in, in, you know, like, and I don't mean to kind of, um, Reduce the concept to, to marketing, but, you know, in a way, it is a concept of brand as well. You know, a, a particular religion is a form of brand because people are saying, can I trust this? You know, is, is this is the Catholic Church or is Christianity or whatever the thing that kind of feeds into my identity and my values? And that's really what, you know, a lot of brands are about. Um, but I do think it's really interesting to see how the, the church navigates this. And I my take on it has been that they haven't navigated it very well in the last couple of weeks. It's been pretty poor kind of brand navigation.
1: So I think as marketers, we're able to step back. And if we think about a religion, you know, in a religious group at, from a brand perspective, we know all about how brands navigate their PR, how they make apologies. And,
0: and they do. They have huge marketing kind of areas. We know that as well. It's not like we're kind of, you know, um, pouring anything onto them. They, they have marketing departments. They have PR people. They're all managing these things. And George Pell had his own kind of PR kind of management as well. So, yeah, you're right. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> and I,
1: I agree that, that yes, the, considering that the church does have people helping with their public relations, you know, they they haven't done a good job of navigating regaining that public trust. And, you know, they might in the future, because of, of what churches represent in general, mm. But in order to maintain trust, you need to maintain, you know, a dialogue with the public and a sense of transparency. Um, and this is not something that the Catholic Church is currently no. famous for. Kind no. of the opposite.
0: Yeah, yeah, but it's a huge church. As Absolutely. Well. Go to Italy and, um, you know, it's, it is part and parcel of culture, really. And go to a lot of these kind of Catholic countries. Um, it's interesting. I mean, we're going to um, kind of need to wind up in a minute. But one of the other things in terms of reputation that you were kind of talking about earlier with me was the um, kind of way, way kind of issue as well. Again, reputational management. Again, you know, uh, a kind of... T- Everything is tarred with the same brush they 're from China. People make these perceptions, but the reality of directors of the Australian kind of component of Weiwei stepping down and saying we don 't necessarily trust this system that kind of doesn 't help the brand very much at all, does it
1: It does not help the brand you, the The thing that is I think worst for a brand ever is when internally you mm. have people saying no we don't we 't have faith in what we 've been selling, what we 've been creating, and you 've seen that happen. You know, in the last year with Google, um, they removed don't be evil from their own <laughs> internal motto because they had workers they at their company <laughs> saying, I don't want to do this because it, it is evil. Um,
0: I don't so- know. I, I kind of – I always find it interesting. That there's Maybe there's a naivety on other people's parts, but to look at these places and to think – these are commercial businesses. Of course, they're going to push the boundaries of what the legal system allows them to do. And, you know, I think things like Airbnb is another one, and Uber, you know, that we we have this naive view that they're there for our customer, that they're there for us as customers. But in reality, they're there as profit making businesses. And you know, Airbnb, um, Uber, I forget who else is, they're all launching publicly this year. And I don't know if you saw in the news, but, you know, San Francisco basically said there's going to be another, I think it was 10,000 billionaires in San Francisco in, in 2019. That is a lot. It's a lot of billionaires. And you think, well, you know, this has not been a community service. These no. these people know what they're in. The, and, and I do think there's a kind of, I, I have this kind of take on any of these um, types of um, companies is that, You've got to take advantage of them while they last because, you know, in a, in a way, as soon as they start having to monetize, they'll kind of go the way of most commercial businesses. And, and um, you know, they'll start basically um, targeting vulnerable people and coming up with ways to sell their product so that they can make profits.
1: Definitely. And, and you can call me a little bit of a cynic, but I have a You're Huawei a little phone. Bit of a cynic. Oh, <laughs> do you? Oh, cool. I do. <laughs> okay. And, um, you know, there's all these privacy concerns, security concerns. The way I see it, again, cynically, mm. is that at least I know who has access to my data. At least I know which government is spying on me and stealing right. my information. Because I don't necessarily trust any of these major phone providers. Yeah, true. I just see that this one has entered the public light this year um, and is dominating the conversation. But it's not necessarily that they're doing anything their competitors aren't a lot of the time. It's... Mm. They grew very rapidly. But maybe also
0: there's a branding thing with um, people's perceptions of foreign governments. Yes. Um, I mean, I think there's a connection to that with things like the um, My Health Record thing as well, is that not just foreign governments, but any government, people have this innate fear of the government using their information, when in fact my experience of governments is generally that they're less sophisticated in using information than most commercial companies. But then even a lot of commercial companies, they have a lot of information, but they don't really use it very well. I think, you know, it's often um, the the dystopian view of how data is used is very different from the reality, which is that there's a lot of stuff going, being collected, but not a lot of it being used in a sophisticated way.
1: I Yeah, that's entirely true. With all this big data, it's a matter of how are we are using this data. Yeah. And the majority of companies are using it to sell to services to give you more targeted advertising.
0: And that's about it.
1: That's most of it. Yeah. Um,
0: and, and that, I mean, you know, who knows what the future looks like? Um, I don't. But I think that's one of the really interesting things is that Maybe it's a good idea to be wary of these things, but also, like you say, and you're kind of demonstrating this kind of sense of control, which is really important to kind of identity. Is this idea if you kind of have a sense of how your data is being used, then at least you can say, "I'm okay with that." So that, and you may not. You know, you're in a way you're kind of doing a form of I don't know um, self kind of ego management in a way because you're saying at least I feel like I'm in control when in fact you may not be
1: of course yes (laughs) um but that's how I manage to slice it I have some idea of who's using it and I'm okay with it and you're right at the the opposite end of the spectrum is to say I will never use this company because I don't trust them um but you could, you could do that with all
0: companies. You could absolutely. close your blinds, lock yourself in home, and but you'd still be monitored, even if you turn on the television or something like that. So Yeah,
1: yeah. to exist in society means, well, to exist in society. In the yeah. in current society, that means some level of invasion of our privacy in terms of data, in mm. terms of social media, and, and finding a way to navigate that, whether it's lashing out as a troll online <laughs> or whether it's not letting the government have your health records.
0: Yeah. Um, what a, what a beautiful way to end. Yeah. Yes, we brought it all back to the beginning. That's been great. Thank you so much, Ginny. Um, I look forward to talking to you again sometime.
1: Definitely. Thanks for having me on. Cheers.